0: You're listening to New World Order, episode 340. Hey everyone, this is Two, and in this episode I've got some listener feedback, which is going to spark inevitable debate. And then I've got some observations about Java, which will also spark inevitable debate. So let's get started. Okay, listener feedback. This is from a listener. I'm still not clear on whether I'm supposed to use this listener's name or not, so I'll just call this person a listener. And he says... I'd like your opinion on what license I should be using for um, a project that he's using. He says, I don't want to force companies, quote unquote force, companies to open source their product because they use mine. At the same time, I don't want large corporations to figure out ways of making money off the OS or using it for data collect- to collection somehow. Not sure if there is any way to avoid the last one. Ideas, preferences? So this is, a, a I think, a, probably a pretty common question and debate lately. There are a lot of angles to it, and I think that's kind of why it's going to spark inevitable debate. And by inevitable debate, I don't necessarily mean people debating with me over email or, or Mastodon or, or whatever. I just mean inevitable debate, even possibly within yourself or within myself, because it's a big question. It's certain certainly the way that the question is is posed there's kind of uh, there's a lot of open ends here it, it is not it, you know th- this is a question that rather is very specific so there actually aren't any open ends here but it implies a bunch of other questions and those that's the open end it is the the other stuff that you want to start thinking about because this has been posed the question as it is stated is what license should this person use for this project that he's working on in order to prevent corporations from specifically making money off of his work and using it for data collection. So if we take the question as stated, then the answer presumably would be uh, don't use an open source license because I don't know of a license Really, an open source license, I don't know of a license saying that you cannot make money off of someone else's work or, and, and that limits how you can use it for data collection. I just don't know of the license that exists. You might be thinking, well, what about the GNU public license, the GPL? Well, that doesn't actually prevent either of these two things. The GNU public license, the GPL, general public license, does not prevent you from making money off of a thing. Uh, I happen to know this for a fact. Because, uh, let's say that I receive large amounts of money from a corporation that uses the GPL frequently and makes quite a bit of money. So there's, there's nothing in there that says you can't resell this. In fact, um, the creators of the GPL have rather famously stated, rather emphatically, that that is not a condition of the GPL. I almost argue over-emphatically there, there's a certain capitalistic bent to the GPL that, really, it, it would be silly to ignore. Uh, they're very specific about the GPL being open for business. So, there you go. GPL's not the way to go, if that's what you were thinking. And, and frankly, I don't know of any other license uh, that would restrict that. So, now I'm not saying that corporations don't limit themselves right they they very frequently the corporations out there very frequently look at the GPL and 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 consider it something that they don't want to partake in because it requires you know decent human behavior for instance i mean i don't know that that's actually the the reason that they cite officially but they they tend to to avoid the GPL because they don't want to have to give code back for whatever reason i don't know if it's because they don't want to commit to having a programmer of that they are paying send the code that they see themselves that we we paid for that code why would we give it away i don't know if that's if that's their reason or if they have other legal concerns i'm not sure i don't know I, i'm not I, I don't deal in that world on, 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 in that on that end of the spectrum so i don't know why but i do know that many corporations will have have said that they're not going to use the gpl now for me personally CLAT2, that's a really good sign Right? Like, that's a great sign. I, I, I'm i going to equate it here to um, music. I like a lot of weird music. I'm, I'm really into sort of some pretty strange music types. And I've often thought that there's this little barometer that I have internally, and not a physical one, um, a sort of a mental barometer internally. And it is it, it sort of measures the uh, sort of quote, independence of of music based on whether or not you could ever expect to hear it in a grocery store. I don't know where, where you live uh, and how things are there, but in America, certainly, there's um, there is a tendency to walk into a big, big, big grocery store and to hear music playing overhead. Like, and maybe it's not a grocery store. Who knows? Maybe it's like a, a shopping mall or a department store. But you know how stores, public places, have music sometimes. And uh, very rarely are the is the music that these places choose something that personally I would listen to, um, even in my darkest hour. It's just stuff that I, I have no interest in whatsoever. And it's always kind of interesting to me that some of the, the pop music that in its time was considered crass or inappropriate for public consumption and then 20 give, give it 20 years and you're hearing it literally in like grocery stores where where people go and it's just sort of background music for the 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 most mundane of activities and you just kind of think you know if you're if you're not really sort of dialed into the fact that there's other music out there other than pop music you think how odd that must be you know how how that artist surely never foresaw when they were screaming into the microphone about how terrible the world is or whatever they are singing about um they probably never foresaw their music being licensed and then sublicensed and then played into people buying avocados and zucchinis it's just not something that they probably expected then again you might be a cynic and you might think well if you got involved in the pop music industry, then that's what you have to accept. You're giving away your license. So there's a debate there. But my point, I think, is that there's kind of, there are some indicators. And there are indicators in sort of how acceptable something is. And when it's not acceptable, there's usually a really important reason for that. So if a grocery store won't play uh, a certain album of music for some reason, I, I figure that that music is probably worth looking at because maybe there's a a, a reason that they won't play it. Maybe it's just too weird, too abrasive, um, maybe the lyrics aren't, aren't pleasing to the corporation, whatever. Same goes for licensing. If the corporations are running from the GNU public license, I feel like that's probably a good indicator because that means that somehow it is incompatible or it is seen as incompatible with something that they're up to. And that something is probably something that I don't agree with. So for me, I think, you know, as this email says, he doesn't want to force companies, and he has got force in quotes there, force companies to open source their product because they used his work. I just don't think, I don't see corporations or companies being in the position of being forced into anything, to be honest. You can't get them to do anything according to anyone's will, much less follow licensing policies. There's probably an argument in there somewhere that, well, no, corporations actually do honor licensing policies. They have very expensive legal departments to make sure that those licensing policies are followed, and so on and so forth. Maybe that's true sometimes, but I think that that big legal department is also there just to make sure that they're not caught not following any licensing policies, or that if they are caught, then they have a, a suitable defense for that. So I'm, I, I guess I'm leaning towards cynicism here and thinking that if you use the GPL license or, or something similar to where there are requirements for behavior for your work, then your, your best hope is that you can force the corporations into complying. I don't think that's a, a, a danger. Now, the part of the email that sort of really got me thinking in, in some tangential directions was the, the, the end of this main sentence here, where it says, figure out ways of making money off the OS. Okay, that I've already discussed. But then he says, "Or using it for data collection. Somehow, I feel like this is a concern that has started to sort of bubble to the surface where it wasn't really something that people talked about so much at some, you know, in, in previous years. And that is this question of ethical use of, of, of your work, where the term ethical becomes really, really fuzzy and imprecise really, really fast. So I think that the implication here is that this person's definition of evil is data collection. I mean, that's, I'm not saying that this is, that's his only definition of evil, but I'm saying that if you talk about data collection, it, it fits into an evil category. And that's perfectly fine. I think that's pretty true and common for many of us in the open-source world. Data collection is generally considered an evil act. Now, there might be other evil acts. For instance, for for many people, using your code for war-like purposes would be evil. If your code is being used to kill people, then that fits into the evil category. Now, other people are a little bit more um, broad with their definition of evil, and they have certain people who they're okay with killing. And so they think, well, it's evil unless it's used for this segment of the world's population, and then I'll move it over here into the good category. And of course there's also the concept of a, quote, necessary evil, where it's it's not nice, we don't feel good about it necessarily, or we don't claim to feel good about it, but we, we consider it a, quote, necessary evil. So there there are definitions of lots of different things that you you find ethical and not ethical, evil and and not evil, evil and good maybe. It's difficult to nail that down, though, and it's very much a personal tolerance type of question. And I, I, once again, as in terms of trying to, quotes, force a a corporation or a a person to do anything that you don't want them to do is a really, really tricky thing, and it becomes... In real life, like in the real world, it's a tricky thing, and it becomes all the trickier when you're trying to do it exclusively by by writing it down on a piece of paper or in a text file called license. Now, we can extrapolate his intent in this email and, and figure what he's really saying is that if everyone is playing above board, then what's the best license to prevent someone from using my code in a way that I don't want them to use it? And once again, I'm afraid I don't know of a, of, of a license that has that kind of specificity uh, baked in. It's just one of those things that that isn't really I think in the spirit of open source at least currently the 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 concept that software could be used for truly evil purposes I think is a relatively I was about to say a relatively new concept, but that's not that's not entirely true, because, I mean, we've got Emerson, Link, and Palmer albums from, like, the 70s talking about the potential evils of, of robot intelli- uh, artificial intelligences. You've got sci-fi dating back even earlier than that talking about the same sort of problem. So I guess it's not a new concept, but I think in the real world, the idea that just someone sitting in their living room writing up some code could possibly contribute to something that they feel is evil is kind of a new and weird idea to, to us, I think. I think that's kind of not what we expected. I think when we think of evil robots going wild, it's, it's more like the ones that are built in the big evil corporations by evil mad scientist types, not because they're using a little seemingly innocent Python library Written by a hobbyist. So I think open source is slowly having to come to terms with the fact that when you open source something that you've worked on, it could feasibly be used by someone who you don't like very much for an activity that you don't approve of. And how can you stop that from happening? And I just, I don't know that there's a way to stop that from happening in reality. Now, if there is an above the board, Kind of playing by the rules assumption, which I think is a little bit of a silly assumption. Um, then, then yeah, you could put in your license cannot be used for you know it would have to be a custom license I guess, and you could say I cannot be used for you know for um, by by a military cannot be used in a military installation or for military technology cannot be used to collect data from people cannot be used for you know whatever hate speech what whatever you don't approve of, you can put that in there. And I've seen custom licenses that, that try to do that. There have been licenses on specifically fonts that I've seen that really, really attempt to get into this kind of deep-in-the-weeds kind of like, I'm going to tell you exactly what you can do with this thing that I've distributed for free on the internet. And if you think about just the, the logistics of that and the way that the, that, that, that just cannot possibly scale... It's kind of comical. There are there, There's kind of this, I think, false impression sometimes that when you release something onto the internet, the three people that you've told about it are going to be able to find... They'll, they'll find it on the internet because you tell them where it is, and that's pretty much the extent of it. And and if you write in a license file, hey, don't use this for hate speech, then, you know, the the couple of people and their extended friends, the, that small group that we can sort of envision with our human brain will respect that the the wish of the creator but when you when you think about how big the planet is and how many people are on the internet it's just it's not going to scale there are people who are going to download the thing that you did and ignore your license file and that's that of course that is a relatively defeatist way of looking at things right i mean it it does it's not very useful to say well there's no way to control anything so just give up and release everything in in, without a license or or whatever so rather than looking at it that way i guess the, the 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 real the the pragmatic view is that currently there are no licenses that seek to control the 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 use the the ethics of the use of 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 code there are no open source licenses that i know of that seek to control the ethical use of of code so I, I don't know that such a thing exists. You could roll your own with with little caveats in there, little conditions of how, of how your your code may or may not be used. The disadvantage there is that it's your own custom license. If you're not a lawyer, who knows what, how that's actually going to go and and that is ultimately what a license is all about, right it's It's the legal it's a legal thing. It's beyond normal human understanding. It's something that is going to get used if there is a debate over how something is being treated. I think, realistically, the the best way to choose the license for the, for this kind of situation is to look at what your intent is and what you desire to get in return. So, for instance, if you're working on a project that you reasonably expect no one to contribute back to and you don't feel like you need contributions in return then releasing it under an MIT or a GNU all permissive or Apache license or BSD license or whatever is probably fine. That's probably perfectly workable for you. If you want to ensure that everyone has equal rights to your software at all times, then the GPL is the way to go, right? Because that buffers the users against someone greedily taking your code and then not sharing their implementation of that with other people it it prevents your code from being backed into a corner and shut out of view from of, of anyone else that's the good new, that's the the GPL's strength is that it prevents corporations from doing that now does it also at the same time discourage corporations from using your code yeah maybe quite possibly that's that yeah that could be a that could be an issue if if you want to ensure that a corporation can use your code without any modification of their behavior, then don't use the GPL. But ultimately, for me, I think the the the, the place that I'm sort of landing here is why why be so concerned about the corporations? I think it's a, it's a very kind of American sensibility. Although this email pers- the person who's emailed me, isn't actually American. I happen to know that, um, or maybe he is American, but he's not living in America either way. But I think that there is a very sort of modern, uh, um, American-based, capitalism-based concern for the sort of the welfare of of corporations. Kind of like, well, I don't want to force them to do anything that they don't want to do. I don't want to, I don't do anything that would, that would upset the corporation. You know, this weird sort of like sensitivity to this, these monolithic entities that have more power and flexibility than, than we can even conceive of, and, and it's, it strikes me as odd. Um, I'm not going to make allowances for, for corporations. I'm not going to modify my behavior for a legal entity that doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't really exist. It's just a bunch of, it's, it's a game that's being played by a specific group of people, and, um, if, if they can't modify their game... To, to fit my invention into into their into how they're working, then that's their problem. That's that's a problem with the system that they've designed. It's not really my problem. So for me, generally speaking, the GPL isn't isn't that huge of a uh, that isn't that big of a deal for major works. Now I, I do quite like a, a good GNU all permissive license or a BSD license or an MIT license or whatever. One of those types of licenses for things that just I don't consider either significant enough, or, or I consider universal and generic enough to be used in other products or in in other projects, because those those that just makes it cleaner for everyone. It just makes the licensing process for the actual person, the human being, dealing with with the code it makes their life easier and and i appreciate it when i come across something that's licensed very very generically like that but for a major work or a um a a work that doesn't really imply um iteration in in the same sense or or rather reuse in the same sense that yeah a little library does uh, i think the gpl is ideal that's as much as i can think to say about licensing keeping in mind that i'm not a lawyer and all those other various disclaimers that I guess you're supposed to say whenever you talk about anything that you don't really know about, which, of course, nobody knows about legal stuff because it's designed to be impenetrable. And it is. Let's go get coffee. That's a lot easier to talk about and much more palatable. (music) ¶¶ Walking past the neighborhood dairy, it's they call it a dairy here in New Zealand. It's not actually a dairy; it's a convenience store in America. There's this sign on the door, and it says "Free coffee February. Bring your own cup." So I go in and I I ask them about free coffee February, and they confirm that if I bring my own cup to into the store, I can get a free coffee. And I asked for restrictions, and they said there were no restrictions. I could do this as often as I wanted. So. Every day I've taken multiple walks down to the dairy uh, a couple of blocks away, and um, I've I've received a free latte. It's been really, really pleasant, and they're really good coffees, actually. Bizarrely, here in New Zealand, they don't have just standard drip coffee that's been sitting out for eight hours like a normal 7-Eleven would in, in America. This is fresh-brewed coffee from an espresso maker um, and steamed milk and every, the whole... You know, it's, it's, it's a very, very fancy coffee, and that's standard in, in New Zealand. If you, go to a, if you get a coffee, that's what you're getting. If you want the lazy, kind of no-effort method of coffee, then you're inevitably going to get Nescafe or Instant Coffee or sanka, whatever variety of crystallized coffee that a place has which um, I've been able to avoid. I got tricked into it, like, maybe twice. But this place, the Night and Day Dairy, on the corner of uh, Ross Place, excellent coffee, and for February, apparently, completely free. Okay, so next up I want to talk about Java, which, as, as you may know, is actually used to be slang for coffee or maybe it still is I don't know but this isn't java this isn't coffee that I'm talking about this is the programming language java that I want to talk about and I want to talk about it because I've I've recently had some close encounters with it that have made quite the impression upon me and I know that java has a mixed reputation out there in the world and I was aware of this pretty early on in terms of sort of becoming you know when I when I awakened and became a uh, when i became aware of of computing of how computers worked and that there were such things as programming languages and and so on you know you you kind of you start to catch on that there are certain technologies out there and i caught on that there was this thing called java and never really had a great or a terribly poor experience with it i just knew that it existed and as i started investigating more into computing and how there how things are made on computers. That was sort of wrapped up with my discovery of open source. That was kind of the gateway. I, I started catching on to the fact that some people disliked Java pretty severely. Like they they really didn't like Java. Like Java was a bad, bad thing. Now, by the time I was really into all of this stuff, Java had been open sourced. So it was there was open JDK, it was an open source thing. I, I don't exactly know like how long, you know, I, I didn't follow Java enough to know at what point it really, the open source version of Java really came into its own. I, I I know that there was the iced tea libraries and projects around that, and I don't know, you know, I don't know the history of it enough to know, and I, I could look it up, but then I would just be reiterating someone else's opinion. So personally, I don't know when when it became... So so much its own thing that you could pretty much swap out open JdK for, um, for, for Java you know the, the Java download available on java.net. I don't know when that happened. I don't know if there was some tenuous times up front where it was an uphill battle to get to a usable state. I, I just don't know. So I don't have a, a bad association around Java personally. In fact, if anything. I've developed. I, I I have been developing a a fondness for Java because I would use Java applications. I've I've can cons- I can name several actually that I use on a pretty regular basis, and that has been true since about 2009. maybe nine. There were some command line Java applications, uh, FOP specifically from the Apache Foundation. i used it all the time, like almost well certainly weekly, almost daily sometimes. It was just one of those applications that I I relied upon because it was a converter from FO file formats to PDFs, which uh, was something that I had to do for work and for fun. I I was translating DocBook into all kinds of different formats and FOP was was one of the, the targets. So I never really understood why some people or or why why Java seemed to have kind of a mixed reputation among certainly open source users, I mean other other users have sometimes mixed feelings about Java, but that's usually born from the really badly implemented Java websites. You know, you'd you'd go to a website and you may have never have had this experience, but back in the I don't know early 2000s, there were these there there were websites that were. Just basically, windows into a, you know, portals into a a Java application. Sort of the the Java GUI was being delivered in your internet browser, and it was this completely different experience than anything else on the internet. It was always very noticeable, and 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 it was riddled with security problems. And I think a lot of sort of normal users, um, and I'm saying that with with air quotes around normal. Um, but, you know, your typical sort of person who's just a computer user doesn't really think about how computers work. Um, a lot of their, if they're aware of Java, they know it as a thing that caused their web browser a problem for about a good year back in 20, I don't know, 15 or, or whenever the, the big sort of the, I think even Mac OS disabled Java for a while, at least in the browser. I mean, it was it was a big deal. It was like everyone was sort of turning java off because it was just problematic and that's fine because that's a that's a very specific problem to an implementation around java and and i i don't that's not the java that i'm talking about in other words i'm just talking about the idea of this programming language having a mixed reputation among people and i think part of the mixed reputation for 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 programming type of people um is because java has a a Java virtual machine. In other words, there is a layer that runs on a computer that essentially has this a, a unique interface to it that Java can talk to. And, and it's, it's very unnatural, I think, to a lot of people, that the idea that there needs to be this virtual machine that runs silently and invisibly in the background so that your system calls don't call the normal interfaces of your computer, but call these special Java interfaces that then talk to your computer and make the things happen. That seems very clunky to, to to many, many people. That feels like, design-wise, it sounds like there are some levels of abstraction there that maybe aren't necessary. And why wouldn't you just program it in a language that can speak specifically to your to your computer's uh, built-in libraries, and so on. So, and I think that's a fair argument, I think. That that really is a fair argument. There's, that that's a, it's a good question. Why wouldn't you just program it in a language that can talk directly to your computer, to your operating system, rather than sticking a Java virtual machine in between the two, and insisting that everything go through this Java virtual machine for translation? In any other situation, I think I would, I would also be saying that that's one level of abstraction too much. And yet, Java produces results. If you look at Java applications, there's a lot to like about them. They're, they're, they tend to be cross-platform. They, it tends to be true that if you have a JAR file, a Java archive, you can run the thing no matter what your computer is. Even if it says it's a Windows application, you can grab that jar and run it on Linux or on Mac in a Java, you know, using the Java command, you, you, as long as you have the JVM or the JRE specifically, the J- Java runtime environment installed, the thing just kind of works. It's really kind of magical and wonderful and nice. So I, I, I've been thinking about this for a while because, because the, the resistance to Java is pretty strong in, in a lot of different communities. And on the other hand, something, uh, for instance, like Python, has very little resistance. And yet the opposite seems to be true in other communities. So for instance, one time I was giving this talk at a technical uh, conference in Pittsburgh, I think it was, and I was giving a a talk about Python, and I think it was Pygame, and it never occurred to me that 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 Python itself needed to be sold on the audience. I just figured if you had come to a talk about Python and Pygame, then you were on board with the idea that Python is what we would be talking about. And while that's true, I think that a lot of people, to my surprise, um, were there because they wanted to be convinced that Python was the thing to use. They wanted to see the reasons behind using Python. Never occurred to me. That, that would be the case but i got several questions publicly after the talk questioning why anyone would want to use python over java now this question specifically came from a a teacher an instructor so the it, the framing was why would i try why would i teach python to my students instead of java because python obviously isn't a serious programming language and Java is. And that seemed really odd to me at the time, because I knew so many Python applications installed on my computer at that moment, that it just seemed crazy to say that Python wasn't a serious programming language, and that Java was. I I got the sentiment, I mean, I got the sentiment that Java was a serious programming language. Java's used in lots of boring applications, like, you know, it's kind of the default enterprise programming language for, for a lot of enterprise types of applications, like, I don't know, accounting and payroll and stuff. But surely Python was suitable for those as well. And, and generally speaking, I think, I think that's correct. I, I don't think that there would be any reason really to shy away from Python as an introductory programming language, or, or even as an advanced programming language, as, as I think the current Python community can can easily prove python can be a very advanced uh high-tech pr- programming language. La- language i mean you can you can do lots of things through python that i feel like a lot of people don't really associate with python or at least m- normal users don't associate with python and this is kind of the problem with python there there's there's two pythons right? I mean, there's Python 2 and there's Python 3. That's not what I'm talking about, because Python 2 is end of life. So there are two Pythons, though. There's the Python that that you kind of get sold as you are coming into programming. And that Python is the one where it's super easy to begin and start out with. You're, you're, You're told that Python's really a handy little language, but is practically infinitely scalable. If you learn Python today, you can build a career on Python upwards of really yeah, six-digit income. And this is crazy. This is true. You can actually do that. It's, like, no joke. If you learn Python, that's what you can do. You can go into all kinds of different industries and make a lot of money doing Python. I know. I've done it. Even sometimes a passing familiarity with Python can get you into surprisingly well-paid positions. And that's a testament to how serious Python can be. It's a, it's a real programming language. There's no no reason to ignore it or downplay it. Or, or pretend like it's not an important part of modern computing. And it should be an important part of modern computing. It's a really easy language. It's a relatively easy language to learn. I would argue that Lua is easier to learn, but I guess that's not what we're doing now. We're, we're doing Python. So, Python. Important. But the, the second... The, that other Python that's kind of sort of standing back in the background, kind of lurking around silently is the Python, uh, let's call it the augmented Python. Augmented Python is a trickier Python than the Python you're familiar with. It isn't the Python that you use to drum up little scripts for yourself, to automate um, relatively simple system-based tasks across several platforms. It isn't the Python that you use to program uh, little video games or to, to come up with quick little commands for yourself. This is a Python that is tightly integrated into C libraries and is heavily modified by a back-end code that requires you to compile new libraries yourself and to hook into them with Python and so on. And the problem with this other, the secret Python that people don't really talk so much about is that we still just use the word Python for it? And I've seen this in action. I mean, people people have said to me, "Well, the cool thing is that this is all just Python." You know, they'll 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 show me something, that a, like a library or something, or or an interface, or so, you know, something happening in a three D application, and they'll say, "And yeah, the, the greatest thing is that it's all Python." Now, if you take, if you stop, if you freeze frame that and look at what the the phrase, this is just Python, actually means um, you'll find that it's not just Python at all. That there are libraries underneath that have Python bindings, so that you're doing really cool things with, quote, just Python. But that doesn't mean Python's doing the thing that you are doing. It means that you've automated the thing, or you've you've made possible the thing with Python, but the only reason Python can do it is because there are these libraries underneath that have py, a, a Python API, and that's that's a lot different than saying. And the cool thing is that this is this is all just Python, because that's a completely different like having to come up with with libraries to uh, manipulate. Um, you know, arrays of pixels, multi-dimensional arrays of pixels, or something like that. It, it's you can do it with Python, but it's a completely different story. It's a completely different process than the Python that that first group learned. So one is is very much dealing with just the scripting of Python, and the other is dealing with low-end library C libraries, APIs, things that do magical processes with lots of low-lying interfaces that are then made easily scriptable because there's a python API sitting on top of it all. And if you don't know how to write a python API, then then that's essentially not python anymore, right? You're not really working with python. You're working you're using python to to perform actions, but but you can't say that that's python because you can't get to the you can't get to the bottom of it by just being in python at some point you're going to have to break out the c code or the c++ source code and take a look at at that thing that was "quote unquote just python" a really easy example of this would be the cute toolkit cute toolkit is is a fantastic um, or even you, you take the G, the gtk toolkit or the gobject i guess is what it is now but the um the, the, the widgets that you see when you launch an application, a GUI application, those little buttons and the, the the text fields and all those things, those are created by some kind of GUI toolkit, right? And there are different ones. And the one that I, I tend to default to when given the opportunity is PyQt. PyQt is, it shares sort of lineage with um, KDE, the KDE desktop, Plasma desktop, uh, based on the Qt libraries. Well, there's this, there's this version of cute called PyQt, P-Y-Q-T. PyQt is um, a way for you to write just, just using Python. You can write a, a graphical interface, and that's pretty cool. It's a really, really powerful mechanism. The problem is that it's not really just Python. You're not just writing Python to drum up this graphical user interface. I mean, you are. If you're in that first group, then you can say, oh, this is, I just did this with Python. And you did. You only used Python. But if you're in that second group, the secret Python group, then you know that it's not just Python. It's this entire library of of cute of the cute GUI toolkit, which is written in C++, with an added layer of... Python compatibility applied to it, on top of which Python itself sits. Now, if that's sounding familiar to you, it's because probably about 10 minutes ago, eh, maybe 15 minutes ago, I don't know how long I've been talking at this point, um, I was talking about Java and how you have your computer, and then you have the Java runtime environment sitting on top of that, upon which Java sits and controls various interfaces. So in other words, there's a level of abstraction going on here in a lot of the Python technology that no one ever really talks about. And that's a that's, that's kind of a problem. It's not it, it's not a technical problem. It is a marketing problem. Or you could say it's a truth in advertising problem. I think this is a, a thing that we do in the computer world. This isn't an open source pr- uh, issue. This is a computer issue. And we all get very excited. I think if I'm giving us all the benefit of a doubt here. We get very excited, and we want to tell people how exciting something is, and so we simplify it. We say, look at this, this is so cool, th- th- and this is all it takes. And then you've are and then you started. And that's true. Uh, taken as a little kernel of truth, that's, that's correct. All it takes is to sort of get started, and then you're on your path. The problem is that we don't tell people how long that path is. And so when we advertise, as it were, Python, for instance... Um, we very frequently sort of simplify it and say look look at how easy this is and now you've now you've started and now you're on your journey but the journey to an outsider looked like a very short journey like you could you could get started today you could spend let's say a year of practice and then finally you reach this point where you're programming blender or maya or whatever application you got introduced to because it has python bindings involved in it there's no awareness there that 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 in that year you you've been learning python but you haven't learned any of the c++ or the c code that you you're going to need to actually learn to do the thing that you thought you were you were walking towards okay so anyway what's the, what's the issue here right so the the issue is that that we sometimes oversimplify things and and i think python is is one of those things that gets oversimplified very frequently because there is that there's that side of python that is truly truly simple and easy to get started with and easy to use and so on and then there's the the more in-depth side that people forget to sort of mention while they're drumming on about how great python is now interestingly there's no such marketing Problem when it comes to Java because there's basically no there's no easy version. I mean that's not entirely true. There are some versions of there are some um, there are some entry ways to Java that are actually fairly simple. For instance, there's the processing programming language which I talk about in Hacker Public Radio episode something or another. I'll, I'll include a link to that in the show notes probably. Um, there's Groovy which apparently is sort of a an simplified interface into into java i've never used that one but i heard about it recently um so yeah there are some simplifications of it but i think because java more or less is so um is so not simple that there's kind of no there's no expectation and there's no accidental advertising that java is easy that's never an expectation. You, you go into Java expecting it to be difficult and fairly unpleasant. Whereas with Python, you go into it thinking it's going to be super pleasant and very easy, and then you realize after some time of using it that there, there are some details that people left out. Again, not really anybody's fault here. It's just that's kind of how we've evolved in the computer world. This is the situation that we've accidentally gotten ourselves into in the way that we talk about these, these different these different options. So Java, why, why am I fond of it? Well, I've become quite fond of Java, both from a user and a developer side of, of the equation. As a user, I, I quite like Java uh, because, as I've said, you download a JAR file and that's basically what you need. That you, If you've got that JAR, if, if, the, if the developer has released the application um, as sort of a complete application, that jar is really all you need, and everything else, everything that's required by that jar is in the jar, and yeah, as long as you've got Java installed in your system, si- system, it just runs. Now, there are exceptions to that. I've met people who can't get a jar to run to save their life. I've seen it happen. So th- there are There are version issues sometimes if someone has released a jar for Java, um i don't know 8 and you try to run it on java 11 then there's something goes wrong or if maybe they've released it on for 11 and you try to run it on 8 something goes wrong the versions are are completely stupid the version numbers of java 1.8 is actually java 8 1.9 is actually 9 i think 1. or java 12 i think is actually 11 or something weird like that i don't know exactly Point being, there, it's messy. There's there's some stuff that's really annoying within the Java world that, that I don't quite have my mind wrapped around. But in terms of ease of delivery, I find Java to be pretty reliably good, as long as you can get the person to install the correct version of the Java runtime, the JRE, that they need. Um, and that's a good thing. I mean, that's that's really nice, and that's cross-platform, too, because there's that Java runtime environment, idling away on, under the system, ready to interpret all kinds of system calls and translate them into something that makes sense to it, to, to the computer running it. Now, there are exceptions to that, unfortunately, um, and I don't know why there are exceptions to that. There are things like JavaFX, FFX, which was recently removed from Java, uh, from the, the download of Java, and sort of relegated to its own independent project, and somehow uh, it's come about that at least as of this recording java fx has platform specific downloads so in order to get java fx to run or to to work with a jar that you're delivering to to many different platforms uh, you have to make sure that you're bundling the correct version of java fx with that platform, or else have them install it, but the installer isn't super friendly, it's basically a zip file right now, so that's a little bit messy as well, so there are definitely problems with that. But in general, if you're using Java and you're writing your GUI in Swing, which is included in Java, then, and it does have some theming uh, capabilities to make it sort of fit in somewhat with the host operating system. You you have a, a complete self-contained, potentially self-contained, jar that simply runs on, on anyone's platform, which is exciting. That's an exciting thing. Now, some people say that, that Python is equally as cross-platform, and I kind of take issue with that. There's There are a lot of things in Python that are, that are cross-platform, and then there are a lot of things, a lot of things that are not. And by a lot of things, I mean that Python, there's lots of different levels to this, and it depends on what, what day it is as to which one annoys me the, the most. But uh, Python suffers, through no fault of its own, uh, from a lot of uh, poor packaging practices or poor distribution practices on the part of major vendors. Um, specifically, for instance, you may have something like uh, Mac OS that ships... Some ancient version of Python with no real awareness or intent to ever update that. I don't think that Apple the corporation sees Python as a user-facing interface. It's not something that they expect users to ever use in in user space. Um, at least not not un, not with any kind of awareness. And by user space, I mean um, in, in, on the on the desktop is what I actually mean. So. In other words, they they clearly recognize the importance of Python for certain system utilities because they bundle it, but I don't know that they update it very often, and I definitely don't get the sense that they expect anyone to be running a Python application on, on a desktop because that's just not really something that's provided for. Now, if you are an advanced user, you can go in and override the default Python on that system. You can update it with uh, Homebrew or something like that, and, and and maybe that'll work for you. Windows, of course, as far as I know, doesn't even package or distribute Python at all, and I, maybe it's changed recently with Microsoft's sort of um, very loud, quote, adoption of open source. I, I don't know, but it, it doesn't seem like they do. I've never, I have not heard that they that they bundle Python with their OS. So I don't think that's a thing. So through no fault of Python's, um, the sort of the that cross-platform integration isn't quite there. Now, of course, people don't bundle Java with their OS necessarily either. But when they do, it is there's um, there's sort of that sense of a long-term support release, and so you know exactly what you, is safe to target. And that tends to be pretty reliable so far in my experience, and that's that's nice, that's refreshing. And again, that's not because Java or Python are better than one or the other. It's just a difference between the two. Now, Python, in in some other ways, isn't quite as cross-platform as we like to to say that it is. Which for for instance, um, for a lot of different things that you want to do that you want to detect in Python, there are there's a couple of different canonical if the OS is POSIX, if the OS is Darwin, if the OS is NT. You know, you, you have to do these checks and set variables accordingly, and it can get a little bit tedious for something that you keep thinking, well, this is a cross-platform interface. I mean, it is a cross-platform interface. There's, It's not untrue. It's just that your code starts to get really kind of riddled with these exceptions and, and detections that makes it not feel exactly like what you might think of as you know, just a just it's just magically cross platform i mean nothing's magically cross platform but from the developer angle do you have to worry about it or not and on python very very frequently you do have to worry about it and and that's just for basic os that's just the stuff in the sys libraries There, there's a bunch of other stuff out there that Potentially, you may have important and notable exceptions to. For instance, if you think, well, Python's a cross-platform library, I can or um, language, I can just I can just use it and target all these these this set of of of, of operating systems. Um, well, you got to slow down there because there might not be a library to do the same thing on each platform that you are targeting. So you might be able to find a Python library to interface with some some peripheral or or some some low level uh, system call for for Python on, on Linux, but maybe it doesn't exist over on Windows, or maybe it doesn't exist over on Mac, or maybe it does exist on Mac, but then you have to download the the SDK or the you know the the, the vendor approved um, access to vendor distributed specialized libraries. And this becomes rather complex. It, it also becomes something that that for for your end user could become not just complex but almost prohibitive. Um, you know, when when you're distributing something and you tell people that in order to use your application they first have to install these five other things, including the the, the dev kit, um, that can be problematic. And really, a lot of that starts to starts to look a lot different from the developer perspective, because now your cross-platform language has a bunch of different exceptions written into it. It's got a bunch of different exceptions about how it's going to get installed on the, the target systems. And potentially it doesn't even have the same code base. Um, I don't know how frequent that is, but w- without, without getting a couple of levels of abstraction between you your Python code and your target system um, there there may well be you may well not be able to really maintain the exact same files for all of your target systems now that's going to be true in many many cases I mean there are going to be things specific to a target platform no matter what you're writing in um but it's well i mean that's not that's not strictly true but i mean it's it, you could say that it's basically true for everything because there's always going to be something about a certain platform that's a little bit different than another one and you're going to have to do something about that whether you consider that a separate code base or 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 not but you know if we're being liberal with the the concept of a code base um my point is that if we if we say python is cross platform then i think there are, there are some there's some caveats and some little asterisks that we should that we should make people aware of when we say that and and kind of make it known that that there will be there will be issues if you try to do this or that. Um, and, and maybe it's not technically an issue, but it's functionally an issue for for your end user. They're gonna have to now install this other thing that, that I forgot to mention to you because I'm just broadcasting that everything's cross platform and magical. But actually, you're going to have to come up with some allowance for the fact that your, you, that your end user is going to have to install all of these other things, possibly Python included. Like even Python setting a system path, overriding a default, whatever the, 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 the scenario might be, it's important to know about that. And it's, it's very frequently not mentioned. Another thing that Python, I, I feel, gets a little, bit, a little bit wrong is the, the whole packaging Of Python, there's. I I feel like it's kind of a little bit of a mess right now. I don't know that it was ever not messy. Um, I never really loved the default sort of um, what is it easy install method of the Python build system. Never really loved that myself. And now it seems like Pip has largely taken over the packaging side of things for Python. And and while there's there's something to that. It's also very much a separate system from the default, certainly Linux or BSD system. PIP doesn't exactly integrate into say RPM or Slack builds or, or uh, Deb apt, whatever it's called. So it's, it's a little bit strange. It's a little bit messy in, in, when you're trying to kind of figure out, okay, well, how am I, how am I packaging, how, how am I packaging this up just to, to make it a thing? like how does that work and i think that there's an expectation in python packaging generally speaking um that it's meant for the libraries like python packaging right now i think favors the 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 modules of of python rather than oh i have a python application here's the python the pie wheel or whatever it's called uh you can install it on your system now it feels like that's not exactly what they they intended pip to be. Um, I could be wrong, I could be extrapolating, or maybe I just haven't seen enough big kind of pip install options to see that, that the intent is just to be a, a general purpose package manager, but f- from my perspective, from what I'm seeing people, ha- the way that people t- seem to use it and to implement it, it seems more like it's a library thing. Which is fine, I guess, I mean, you have to learn that and be okay with that, and, and that's that's fine, that's a th- that's an option i just don't know that that answers um the, the 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 question of well how do i distribute my application now at you know in in terms of a an end user application and i guess that i keep feeling like i have to specify end user application versus library kind of kind of makes the 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 confusion about python a little bit even more real for me and th- and that is because there's there are people out there who will talk to you only in terms of developing Python versus developing with Python. There's there's a major, major difference there, and I don't know that the two communities quite know how to interact. Now, since there is no apparent sort of end-user packaging format for Python, other than PIP, but as I've just said, I think PIP is more for libraries, or at least that's how it tends to get used in my experience, um because there's not an apparent sort of obvious app store package packaging format for python um there is the question of okay well how do i package my python app for for systems and and that's a good question and i don't know the correct answer for that uh certainly as it stands now as far as i can tell um that is a thing that you have to do for each platform so in other words There's the, you know, if you're going to package an installer for an application, you'll have to write a Windows installer with some kind of open source solution like Insys or whatever. I think it's called Insys. And if you want to package it up for Mac, then you'll have to figure out how Mac packages their things. And I don't actually even know how that's done. I know that they tend to deliver them in a .dmg, but I, for the life of me, I don't know how any of that stuff is generated. And and then you've got other questions on Linux. I mean, you can certainly write a an RPM for um, like a spec file for your Python application and install it using sort of the, the usual quote-unquote Python tools, but it's not super clear what those are to me right now. Uh, or you could try to package it in a flat pack or maybe an app image, but app image doesn't really love doing the python stuff that they they tell you that you have to install or or rather package python itself with the app image so you're literally bundling um anaconda or conda something like that with with your app image it's like a 200 megabyte download it it can get complex in other words and i don't know that there's like the easy and obvious solution to that honestly um not cross-platform that there's a there's a solution out there for for each platform i'm sure but in terms of developing on one platform then developing and then delivering onto the others i don't i don't know of a reliable way to make that happen with python doesn't mean that it doesn't exist i'm just saying it's not something that is i would consider obvious to me having done a, a fair amount of research into the question but admittedly not not knowing everything that there is to know in the world now a lot of these these problems exist no matter what and and i'm not saying that java has it all figured out but i am saying that java does manage to be Pretty seamlessly cross platform in most cases, there are always exceptions, but the Java the current Java tooling, and I think the historical Java tooling takes cross platform cross platformedness very very seriously they They are quite serious about being able to maintain really one code base for all of your target platforms and uh, exporting, ideally, a single jar for all of them. Doesn't always happen, but it can happen, and if you work towards that, it's it's fairly easy to make it happen. It's something that, for I think, nine times out of ten, that's happening. Packaging format and installing it is really sort of, it can be minimal adjustments for each platform, if any at all. I mean, it kind of depends on on system configurations, I guess, but most systems, I feel like they kind of know how to run a jar. And that's a huge advantage, I think, that that they've got that sort of established delivery format that works across all platforms. It's huge. Of course, there are things that Java isn't particularly great for. I mean, as I say, as an introductory language, I'm not sold on Java at all. I don't know that that's the The programming language that I would personally want to introduce someone to immediately, I I think that there are a lot of little details in there that most people who just want to get into hobby programming don't ever want to think about, and probably really shouldn't have to think about at all. Um, Now, again, one problem with Python is that there are those two different, as, as far as I can tell, two different camps of Python. One camp who's like, yeah, as long as it runs on your computer, that's cool, and the other camp. Are the traditional programmers who, who know all this stuff and say, "Oh, you're scoping on that variable is all wrong. It's a security risk. You should stop programming and go away." Um, and maybe they're not that harsh, but I mean, they, they get into that deep that level of detail that kind of defeats the stated purpose of the simplicity of Python, and that can be problematic. Um, again, in Java, you you have the same issue. It's just that there's no pleasant, way, there's no easy way to ignore it. You just have to deal with it. So. I'm, you know, it's, it's there are advantages and disadvantages, and I guess ultimately that's what I'm saying in general, is that while Java may be great for certain tasks, uh, Python is probably better for other tasks. And well, no, it's not probably better; it's definitely better. There are definitely better options sometimes for certain tasks with Python. It's it's easier; it's objectively easier to write than Java. It is possibly less, um, it requires less work, uh, depending on what you're delivering to, it may, it may require even less work. There's just, there's a, there are many things that Python does really, really well that Java hasn't got a chance of doing in the same way, but there are things that Java does a lot better than Python. And I think as open source enthusiasts, as I I believe you and I are dear listener, um, I think recognizing that it's not a competition is important we say that a lot in open source we we often say that open source is about choice and open source can can withstand lots and lots of different uh, of of redundancy and and so on but i i feel like sometimes communities get kind of up in arms about about perceived redundancy and even perceived competition and i know that there's a theory out there that competition breeds excellence I don't know that i buy into that i was never really a team sports type person but um the the idea is is quaint and it there may be truth to it i don't know i I feel like competition there's competition and there's competition right there's there's comparison and then there's combat competition comparison i believe does breed excellence because you can look at one system and then you can look at the other and say oh these these two things are different and I really like that thing from over there. I think I'll adopt it into mine. That's comparison for me, right? Competition is where you say, oh, there are these two systems. We have to kill the other one. That, to me, doesn't breed excellence. The The thing that, that breeds excellence is that, that act of comparing and borrowing and sharing ideas. To me, that's different. Maybe it's semantic, and and if you associate positive results with competition, then then. Continue using that word without thinking about the way that I perceive it, but um, I think that that it's important for us to remember that Python can exist and Java can exist, and they can both be equally they can have equal value f- for specific tasks um, in the same way that, for instance, Python and bash can both exist. We don't have to implement a terminal interface in Python. there There's an implementation out there. In Python, and that's really neat that they can do that. But Bash is very useful for certain for certain things, and Python is very useful for other things, and, and so on. So it's it it truly truly is not an all or nothing. It's not a competition. There can be both. There's no reason to tear one down over the other, and so on. Um, it's okay to have personal preferences, um, but but I think in, especially when when sort of broadcasting the virtues of of open source and of Linux to to others. I think it's important to realize that there are different options and different preferences, and and it's okay that there are differences between Python and Java, and it's okay to say that Java is better at cross-platform application delivery than Python is. It's not not like we're saying Python doesn't have value anymore. We're simply saying that if you're going to do a cross-platform application and you want it to be running on several different platforms from one code base, you should be looking at Java. So that's my uh, thoughts and feelings about Java. We've talked about licensing, got all the controversy out in one episode. Thanks very much for listening. Let me know what you think via email or Mastodon. I will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order cast This has been Clatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the free node network, usually in channels such as OGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Clatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Clatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu@member.fsf.org. at member.fsf.org. That's clatu@member.fsf, at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.